Morning. Let's pray together. God, I'm grateful today for your sustaining grace. I'm grateful today for the opportunity to wake up this morning and come here and be a part of this faith community. God, I'm grateful for every breath that I take and the ways that you provided for me and for my family. And we're grateful above all, at least for me, for your grace today, for favor and blessing that you've poured out on us that we did not deserve, especially in and through your son, Jesus. So we come to you this morning with grateful and contented hearts and ask that you would Speak to us, O oh God, through your word today and remind us how it is that we interact as a family. Speak now, O oh Spirit of God, in Christ's name, the people of God, together said, amen. Hey, would you guys thank Scott for being here again this morning? Since, uh, since Scott was here with us last, he's become a dad, so that's kind of fun for him, and uh, his wife and, and baby were not able to travel with him this time because they don't have a passport for him yet, uh, but uh, they'll join him next time, so it's always fun to have, have Scott here with us. Uh, for those of you who maybe are new with us, uh, we've been journeying through a series over the last uh, four or five weeks here, and, and today is the last day of that series, and the series is called Our Family Table. And here's what we've been talking about. The early Christian church used to understand corporate worship in the context of a meal called the agape feast. And during that meal, they would receive the elements, the Lord's table, communion, Eucharist, whatever it is that you want to call it now. But they worshiped in the context of a meal. And so seeing uh, our corporate worship service kind of through the lens of a family meal or a family table helps us understand how God might have us behave uh, with one another. And I'm not always a review guy, but I do like to review sometimes. And so kind of remember where we've come from over the past four weeks. We started with the gathering of believers. Is what, what, that's what we're doing here right now. And remember, we talked about the early church being crazy diverse, multi-ethnic and multilingual. And so when they gathered together as believers, they just kind of had a couple of core values that governed their time together. And those values were everyone is welcome at this table. Jews, Gentiles, slave, free, uh, Greek, Hebrew, all men and women, everybody is welcome at our family table. And that's a value that we hold here at Bayview Glen, that everybody is welcome. And when we gather together, it's about nourishment, about getting nourishment for our souls and for our spirits. And it's not about you and it's not about your preference and it's not about what you like, it's about all of us together. And, and we talked about being on time to church. And, and congratulations, you did great for a week. It was awesome. For that week, you were solid, but it's gone downhill since then. But I assume that you'll pick it up again. So after we talked about gathering, we talked about gossip. We talked about this one bad ingredient that could really ruin any recipe of, of success or health that we might have at our church. We, we talked about gossip. And we talked about some of the ways that gossip is really insidious. We don't always know we're doing it. Remember these questions, is it helpful or is it hurtful? 
Is it conjecture or is it confirmed? Am I gossiping just by guessing, you know, as to what might be going on? Or, or am I promoting gossip by permitting it in my own life? And so here's my question regarding gossip. We've been talking about this. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but how, how you doing? How you doing on that gossip piece? Things going okay? About like you're doing as far as being on time to church? Or are we, we hoping doing a little better than that? Good. Good, awesome. Okay, then we talked about governance. We talked about servant leaders in the church. Remember from Acts chapter six, we talked about deacons who are there to care and support and model for us Christ-like behavior. And then we talked about this other group of servant leaders called shepherds. And here at Bayview Glen, those are two types of people. Those are elders and pastors. And we had, I, I just, I thought, I thought it was a great time around our family table here at Bayview Glen, laying our hands on those servant leaders, deacons, elders, and, and, and pastors here and saying, we love you, we support you, and we are so grateful for your servant leadership here at Bayview Glen. And then last week, here's what we talked about. We talked about giving. We talked about generosity. We talked about moving from just consumption to contribution. We talked about giving financially. We talked about giving of our time. We talked about giving of our resources, of our skills and gifts and abilities. And we said that potlucks are better than buffets. And this morning, we're concluding our series with which, it, this is really my favorite thing to talk about, and it's grace. Grace. This is what we're going to talk about this morning. And as I've been thinking about grace in the context of our family table, the recipe for a healthy church, what I've been thinking about is grace is a lot like gravy. I don't know that you, I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way, but I know that this time of year, here, here, here's what I mean by that. This time of year, we start watching a lot of Christmas movies, don't we? Especially now that the fake Thanksgiving is over, the fake Thanksgiving being U.S. Thanksgiving on Thursday, real Thanksgiving was six weeks ago here in Canada, fake Thanksgiving was, was a couple days ago in U.S., and now that fake Thanksgiving is over, we start to watch Christmas movies. How many of you have a favorite Christmas movie? Do you like Elf? Elf, anybody like that one? Wonderful Life, It's a Wonderful Life, do you like that one? I, I've got one, it's called National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. That's, that's my favorite Christmas movie, really inspires me to think on the incarnation, of course. And I wouldn't recommend that film for mixed company. And if you ever get an opportunity to watch it, I recommend that you watch the TV edit of it. But it's a great film, and there's a scene in this film uh, where Chevy Chase's character, Clark, is his name, Griswold, is hosting a, a meal, a Christmas meal, and his cousin Eddie, remember his cousin Eddie, who's like this crazy redneck guy? His wife makes a turkey, and she leaves the turkey in the oven for far too long. And when they cut the turkey open, and everybody's, you know, all the anticipation and the expectation, we're going to eat turkey together. They cut this turkey open, and the thing just opens up, and it looks like the Sahara Desert. I mean, she, she starts weeping. I knew I left it in too long, and it's so dry. And she's essentially made turkey jerky is what she's made. It is just absolutely horrendous and horrible. I was going to show you the scene this morning, but I think it's illegal. Okay, that's beside the point. And everybody turns and looks at her and says, it's fine, it's fine, we'll be just fine, it's going to be great. And so they say, you know, thanks and grace or whatever it is. And then the next scene is everybody gnawing on this hard turkey. And the way that they fix the turkey jerky is that they dump what on top of it? Gravy. They just dump gravy on top of it. They're dumping gravy on potatoes. They're dumping gravy on stuffing. Because here's the deal. Gravy covers a multitude of sins. It, 
doesn't matter how bad it is, if it's turkey jerky, if it's potatoes that you cooked for too long, if you just dump gravy on it, I mean, thank God for gravy, right? If you just dump gravy on it, it is going to fix whatever problem you have. I grew up in the southern United States. This is how we feel about stuff. This is why the number one cause of death in, in the U.S. is heart disease for men. That's beside the point. The point is gravy covers over a multitude of sins. So here's the deal. If we get gathering wrong sometimes and if we slip up when it comes to gossip and if the governance isn't quite right and we're not always as generous as we could be as long as we got this we're good grace covers over a multitude of sins no matter how bad it gets if we are experiencing the undeserved favor of God and working hard to live it out in our life there may be things that we don't do all that well here at Bayview Glen there may be things that you don't do all that well in your family there may be things you don't do all that well in your business or in your personal life but as long as you are experiencing and living out grace that grace will cover over a multitude of sins. Let me prove it to you. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter. He says, above all, he said, I've, I've talked about personal holiness. I've talked about the, the qualifications for elders. I've talked about husbands and wives and submitting to governing authorities like kings and that kind of thing. I've talked about all of these things. But most importantly, above all, the, the thing that I want you to hear, if I could just leave you with one thought, here's what Peter says to the church. Above all, love one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied, say this word with me, grace. See, this is grace. This is grace. And I want to start this morning with a working definition of grace. And many of you, uh, you know, you've heard me define grace this way as God's undeserved favor, his unmerited blessing, its goodness and, and kindness that God has bestowed on us that we didn't earn. But, but I want to kind of twist our definition just a little bit this morning and put it more in the context of interpersonal relationships. Because remember, we're talking about our family table. And we're talking about treating one another with grace and pouring grace over one another. And so here's our working definition of grace this morning. It's going to start this way. And, and we're going to do this in two parts. So, so grace is the unwavering commitment to the well-being of another. Grace is the unwavering commitment to the well-being of another. And we often think of grace as permission, don't we? We think of grace as license. You know, I, I, sometimes people like say, well, you, could you just give me grace on that? And what they mean is, would you allow me to just do whatever I want to do without any accountability? Would you allow me to just make poor decisions? Could you just give me grace on that? But that's not the nature of grace. Our unwavering commitment to the well-being of another may move us to bring sin to that person's attention. It may move us to address an action, an attitude, or a behavior that might be compromising their well-being. 
So grace is not permission. Grace is not license. Grace is you and I looking at one another and saying, no matter what it takes, I will say the hard things. I will be there in difficult times. I will come alongside you and treat you with grace. It's the unwavering commitment to the well-being of another. Let me give you an example. Uh, Kaya and Amy and I went out to lunch, I don't know, six months ago with a friend of ours. And Kaya, she's... I was going to say she was just learning to walk. The reality is I, I'm still kind of learning to walk. I make mistakes all the time. But we walk out of this uh, lunch spot, and we step up to the curb. And just as we stepped up to the curb, Kaya sprints from behind me. And the timing was rather unfortunate because a van sped by in this parking lot just as Kaya was about to step out into the road. And my kid's like 18 months old, right? What do I do? I'll just show her grace, right? Give her license. Give her permission to run out into the middle of the road in front of this van. Of course not. <laughs> I grabbed her. I grabbed her by the arm because my unwavering commitment to her well-being moved me to stop her from compromising her health and safety and running out in front of the van. See, this is the nature of the grace of God. God does the very same thing. He's a God that addresses action and behavior that might compromise our well-being. He's a God that lavishly pours out blessing when we don't deserve it, regardless of the personal cost to him. And that's the same way I look at my kid. Like, I grab her by the arm to prevent her from compromising her well-being, and I would be happy if someone came to me and said, hey, look, it's you or the kid. One of you is going to step out in front of that van. I'll take it every time because all I want is good for her. All I want is the best for her. See, this is the heart of God. When someone had to go to a cross, God said, I'll take it. I'll take it for you and for me. His unwavering commitment to our well-being. And so this is the second part of our definition of grace. Grace is the unwavering commitment to the well-being of another regardless of the cost. Regardless of the cost. This is the heart of God. And grace is a fundamental and distinctive attribute of God and a biblical worldview. The idea of grace makes the God of the Bible different. Grace is not present in any other worldview or world religion. There's a Bible scholar that says this, the religion of the Bible is a religion of grace or it is nothing. And the entire Old Testament is littered with every op God taking every opportunity to show his grace by pursuing well-being, to demonstrate his unwavering commitment to the well-being of another, regardless of the personal cost to him. The, the, grace didn't start at the New Testament with Jesus. Grace litters the Old Testament from start to finish. It was God's unwavering commitment to the well-being of another that caused him to provide for Adam and Eve, that moved him and motivated him not to just destroy the world and continue living on in Trinitarian joy by himself without people. Like God could have done that at Genesis 3, but it was his grace that moved him not to. Grace motivated God to provide a way for Noah and his family to be safe from the flood. Grace 
motivated God to call Abram out of his country and to create a family for himself through Abraham. Grace was what motivated God to rescue the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And then when God introduced himself to Moses in the uh, wilderness after rescuing his, his people from slavery, he introduced himself this way, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Grace caused Esther to find favor in the eyes of a king. Grace caused her, moved her, motivated her to pursue the well-being of the nation of Israel regardless of the personal cost to her. It was God's grace that saved three Hebrew boys from Nebuchadnezzar's flames. It was grace that motivated God to send prophet after prophet after prophet to call the nation of Israel back to himself. In fact, in my study of, of grace this week, especially throughout the Old Testament, I came across this passage in the New Testament that's fascinating to me. And, and I wanted to share it with you this morning just so we can kind of wrap our heads around even what God is doing in the midst of showing grace, demonstrating his unwavering commitment to our well-being regardless of the personal cost to himself. It's up here on the screen. Peter writes this. He said, concerning this salvation. He's talking about our salvation from sin now and our salvation from judgment and hell and death. He says, the prophets, Old Testament, who prophesied about, say that word with me, grace, that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. So, so listen what's happening now. The prophets are getting these visions from God. They're getting these words from God. And they come back to God and they, and they inquire of him. They go, what are these pictures? What's, what's happening here? And the spirit of Christ, pre-incarnate Jesus now, begins to reveal to prophets before Jesus even showed up on the scene. He begins to reveal to prophets. And look what he revealed. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but who? You and me. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What's happening here? Peter is saying in the Old Testament, God is demonstrating his grace over and over and over again. And the prophets are starting to see something coming on the horizon. God's ultimate display of his grace. And Peter is saying even angels are going, look, it's neat that I'm an angel and I've got six wings and I, you know, all this stuff. This is pretty cool. But you know what I'd really love to look into? What I'd really love to experience God's ultimate display of his grace. And God's ultimate display of his grace is what? Jesus. Just so you know, if a pastor ever asks you a question, Jesus is probably a good answer for it, okay? So what's God's ultimate display of his grace? It's Jesus, right? It's Jesus. Jesus is God's ultimate display of his commitment to our well-being regardless of the personal cost to himself great personal cost to send his son, Jesus, in order to display his grace and display his commitment to our well-being. But here's the thing, and here's where this grace begins to kind of permeate who we are and what we do. 
understand that God's grace is multifaceted. God's grace is like a kaleidoscope of color. God's grace is not just applicable to your salvation and your relationship with God. Yes, it finds its ultimate expression in Christ, but in the New Testament, for the authors of the New Testament and for the early church, grace, this idea of God's grace, began to permeate everything they did and everything they thought. It began to transform the way that the authors of the New Testament saw absolutely everything. Grace, God's grace manifested in Jesus made it possible for believers now, Christ followers, to reflect his grace in their character and in their relationships. So listen closely. Here's what begins to happen. God shows his grace throughout the Old Testament. His ultimate display of his grace is in Jesus. And now that we've experienced that, our call as a covenant community is to reflect that grace to one another and to the world. If our job, and it is our job, since our job as God's family is to reflect his character to the world, we have no other choice than to be gracious to one another. Then to look each other in the eye and say, I am, I am resolutely committed to your well-being regardless of the personal cost. So here's what the Bible begins to talk about. From a position of grace, we can set aside selfishness and conceit and treat others with deference, according to Philippians 2. In an attitude of mutual servanthood, according to Ephesians 5. And in a spirit of mutual forgiveness, according to Matthew 18. So that even our communication can exhibit divine grace. According to 2 Peter 3.18, the grace of God represents the cosmic context of the lives and relationships of believers. So we are exhorted to grow in the grace of God. Grace in relationships is encouraged in Luke 6, Romans 15, Philemon 14, uh, verse 14. Grace is encouraged, or generosity is encouraged as an expression of God's grace. In 1 Corinthians 10, 2 Corinthians 9, Galatians 6, 1 Timothy 16, or 6, 18, and Hebrews 13. Mercy and compassion to one another as an expression of the grace that we've experienced is encouraged in Matthew 18, Luke 10, Romans 15, 1 Peter 3, and Jude 22. Spiritual gifts are described as God's graces, and Paul assumes that we've been since we've experienced uh, God's grace and been given a gift of grace, then we will use it and perform deeds of grace. Again, for the New Testament authors, this idea of grace wasn't just something that they had experienced from God and received from God. It was something that they were now empowered motivated, moved to display and show to one another. Like this idea of grace was so pervasive all over the New Testament that they begin to use the word grace to greet one another. And in the Old Testament, the typical greeting was just shalom. It meant peace. But the New Testament authors began to add this word grace. Look up here on the screen. Paul says grace to you and peace all over his letters in the New Testament. Peter says may grace and peace be multiplied to you in his letters in the New Testament. John, another disciple, says grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. Everything they did and everything they thought 
was covered in grace. For the authors of the New Testament, here's what I want you to see this morning. Grace was far more than an attribute or activity of God. Listen close now. Grace was far more than simply an attribute or activity of God. It was far more than a prayer offered before a meal. For the early church and the apostles, grace was a way of life. It was a new way of seeing the world. It was like something that they had never experienced or seen before. Grace was a comprehensive philosophy that governed their finances, their interpersonal relationships, their family, their internal life, their business, politics, everything. Grace was the gravy that covered it all for the authors of the New Testament. So, as I was reading this week, and I was studying this week, I made a decision. I I called Amy yesterday, and I said, my posture, I think, is going to shift for my sermon tomorrow. And so here's here's where my posture uh, shifts. At least I hope so. I don't have a whole lot of like practical application for you this morning and like quippy little things and like, oh, isn't that funny? He told a really neat joke. I don't have that for you this morning. Here's what I want to do. I want to go back to the way Peter exhorts the church and I want to beg you to do the very same thing. Here's how Peter exhorts the church, remember. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Brethren in Christ, brothers and sisters, I beg of you, above all, love one another. Above all, show grace to one another. Above all, live in the grace that God has extended to you. His resolute commitment to your well-being, regardless of the personal cost to him, and show that to someone else in this congregation and in this city. Men and women of God, You and I do not know how badly this world needs grace. We think we do sometimes. But this world is in desperate and dying need for grace. And it's us, the church, the family of God, that's empowered and called to demonstrate that grace to others. As your pastor, as a member of this faith community, Please, please, above all, love one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Grace listens well. Grace doesn't compare itself to others. Grace probably doesn't spend a lot of time on Instagram. Grace assumes the best and not the worst in someone else. Grace is generous. 
Grace is gentle. Grace is really quick to forget when it's wronged. Grace is humble. Grace doesn't pass judgment. Grace protects the weak. Grace speaks life into others. And grace finds victory in the most impossible circumstances. I do not beg very often. But this idea of grace, we could could break a lot of stuff here. (laughs) And if we do grace right, we'll be okay. Someone could overcook the turkey. If we got good gravy, we'll be fine. If we do grace right, if we live in the grace that God has extended to us, if we understand his unwavering commitment to our well-being, regardless of the personal cost to himself, and we extend that grace to others, we're going to be just fine. So I beg you, be gracious. I wanted to end with um, the lyrics of a hymn. Um, uh, my wife is, is uh, back in Phoenix for, for fake Thanksgiving, and um, when she's away, I don't sleep, and when I don't, when I don't sleep, I get emotional, which um, is new for me. I don't, I don't cry, Dave. You know that. Dave cries almost every day at the office, sometimes two or three times. And so, um, so I'm going to read you the lyrics to the, this hymn. I, I'm already... I, I, like, look... I, Sometimes I, I um, and this is, this is sin on my part, I'll just, I'll just tell you it's sin. I, I get up and I think I really would like to preach a great sermon this morning. Guess who that's about? <laughs> I heard somebody say this week that as a preacher we're supposed to be God's paper boy. It's his news, we're just delivering it. <laughs> like, above all, love one another earnestly. So the wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? And where shall its praise begin? Taking away my burden, setting my spirit free. For the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. Man, I hope this is awkward for you. so awkward for me. The wonderful grace of Jesus reaching a mighty host. And by it I have been pardoned, saved to the uttermost. Chains have been torn asunder, giving me liberty, for the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. Wonderful grace of Jesus reaching the most defiled. And by its transforming power, making him God's dear child. Purchasing peace in heaven for all eternity, and the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. Wonderful The matchless grace of Jesus, deeper than the mighty rolling sea, higher than the mountains, sparkling like a fountain, all-sufficient grace for even me, broader than the scope of my transgressions, greater far than all my sin and shame. Oh, magnify the precious name of Jesus and praise his name. Let's pray. So God, our confession this morning is that my 
magnifying the precious name of Jesus and praising his name is not just about songs or holy conduct or praying. But God, we can magnify the precious name of Jesus and praise his name when we live out the wonderful grace of Jesus in this community of faith. When we treat one another with kindness and goodness, especially when we extend favor to others that they did not deserve. When we cast off any kind of thing that might hinder us or be a hurdle for us, when we are willing to pay a personal cost to ourselves in order to protect the well-being of another. God, we praise in those moments your wonderful and matchless grace. God, we prayed at the beginning of this series that you would break our church. And God, in those broken places, would you just pour your grace in even now? God, that we would be humbled, that we would be convicted even of our prayerlessness, of our self-dependence, of our self-righteousness. God, that you would crack open those places in our, in our church and in our personal lives that have just become stagnant and still. And that you would simply pour your grace onto every part of who we are such that we could live out the wonderful and matchless grace of Jesus in our relationships with one another. God, may we be moved today, even emotionally, by your grace. In Christ's name. Amen. As we close uh, this morning, we're going to do something that's kind of a little different. Uh, we're going to light an Advent candle and an Advent wreath, and we're going to do that over the next five or six weeks. I love the way that uh, the book of Hebrews starts. Sorry, i got to find it here. I feel like I'm doing a sword drill when I was a kid. Church people think that's funny. So long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become much superior to angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The Advent candle, the Advent wreath, isn't you know, something that we get from Scripture. It's something that we get from church tradition, and it you know, dates back five, 600 years and all that stuff. But each candle, each week that we light, reminds us of one aspect of this Advent season, and we'll get to... Uh, all the rest as we, you know, in subsequent weeks. But today we light the candle of expectation. 
the candle of anticipation, the candle of hope, that when the world was dark and we were captured and, 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 and tormented by sin and shame and circumstances seemed impossible, the world longed for a savior, longed for a king, longed to experience the grace of God. And in this moment as a church family, in this part of the Advent season, we're reminded and we kind of take on that sense of anticipation and expectation of God sending a savior. And so today we light the candle of anticipation, the candle of expectation. So I invite you to stand with us as we close and sing and I light the candle of hope.